0: Through glass, so not crashing into each other to feel something in the Don Cheadle sense. In honor of Insurgent, what's the best movie moment involving something or someone crashing through glass?
1: I'm Katie Rich, and John McClane walking on broken glass proves that if Annie Lennox sings about it, it makes you a great hero.
0: it's me, Dave the Seven, Jaws 3D, the only good moment in that movie, the shark just headbutts the control room glass and floods the
2: chamber. It's great. I'm Matt Patches, and uh, some people may object to this because when, when um, David Werner gets his head chopped off in The Omen, it, the pane of glass that chops his head off uh, is intact. But then it smashes through glass, and so does his decapitated head. So I think it counts.
0: Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. Coming through fine too, eh? Good then. Well then, as you say, we're both coming
1: through fine.
0: Good. Well,
1: it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine.
0: It's It's a podcast. podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 63 for Wednesday, March 18th, 2015, the year of our time, Lord Dr. Emmett Brown. Congratulations, you all survived St. Patrick's Day. It was a tough time for all of us, but we made it through. Uh, Before we get started, uh, Matt Patches, David's not here, so will you read our new review?
2: I will. Uh, the, The title of this review is Film Flavored with Pop Culture, whatever that means, by Rod24601. Um, and it's, it's worth that pointing out That sounds like someone we definitely that my don't My father's know. name is Rod, and 24601 <laughs> is a clear uh, uh, lame is a Rob reference. So this is probably my father. If it's not, creepy.
0: Um, <laughs> no, my if dad, it's not. You quotes, need to be friends with this
2: yeah, person. <laughs> exactly. Uh, from my dad, in quotes, I've, I've enjoyed the sprinkling of pop culture topics into the podcast, but upcoming movies may not warrant conversations. Keep it coming. That is a disbomb the Hollywood. Rod Patches <laughs> slams Hollywood at the latest review. That is the
1: headline for this review for sure. Um, do
2: appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. My. I know. I. I got a text after our last episode that my dad was flattered by David's story about his encounter uh, in Montauk having dinner with my father. So I know he really appreciated that. So David, shout out to him can't be here today, but uh, I I also encourage people who are not related to me to leave reviews (laughs) um, because we have many from people who are not related to us and they're always enlightening and they sometimes grill us and they're all wonderful and fun to read. Um, So the the more colorful, the better, I would say.
1: I'm realizing it was a major missed opportunity not to have Rod Patches as the guest reviewer on this podcast.
2: (laughs) Yes, having no knowledge of anything we're about to talk about, but just to be there to slam Hollywood.
1: Yeah, Rod Patches throws truth bombs, and you can too by leaving us a review, but if you're nice to us, we'll be happier.
2: Uh, So today's tidbit is kind of, it it started off as self-promotion because it's inspired by something that Esquire is currently doing. Can it continue to
1: be self-promotion, even if it's also a good idea?
2: Yes, you're right. It's still self-promotion. So I encourage people to go to Esquire and read all the shit that we're writing about uh, for this kind of week of of March Madness-inspired fun. We, We took... Lots of television shows that people have declared uh, canceled too soon. You know these gems that only lasted a season to one, two, maybe three, um, and we've created a bracket in them, and we've decided: well, if if you could only reboot one, and reboot is is a very elastic term that is internet friendly. In this case, reboot means revive, resurrect, uh, or, you know, sequelize in some way, bring back this property in one way or another. Which show? that we, we didn't get enough of the first time, would you bring back? Um, and there are clear contenders here and that are going all the way to the final rounds. You got your Firefly. You got your freaks and geeks. Uh, you got your party downs. Uh, th- these typical shows that seem to flood the internet time and time again when the idea of uh, bringing back something that didn't get enough time in the spotlight uh, comes up. And, and I don't know why we keep talking about these shows. Firefly, pretty good show. I honestly think that the reason people want Firefly back in some shape or form is because we don't really have any kind of space opera on television right now. It's ju- they, they're not, they don't want Firefly exactly. They just want something episodic that is science fiction on maybe network television where there's a budget um, where you can get good actors to be in it. But that's kind of besides the point. What I wanted to turn it to you guys was what show you might bring back in this tournament. Because so many people only pick their favorite shows. They're not really thinking it through. Why would you want to bring something you love back when there's such a risk factor to doing so? And before you answer, I had three kind of ideas. <laughs> yes, I'm going to keep rambling.
1: Before you answer, let me tell before you. No, before you answer. I,
2: no, I wanted to plant this idea in everyone listening. Uh, Into their minds because I think there could be. I have a resistance to the idea of bringing shows back. Usually, it just, there's no point. It's never going to be good enough. And and it's usually a cash in if it actually happens. You know, Twin Peaks is the most recent show that seems that is actually going to be resurrected as long as David Lynch signs his contract, which is a big to do at the moment. But um, (laughs) I have three ideas. Either the show was ahead of its time, it didn't make sense to be put on air in the first place, um, or, or it was the wrong moment, and maybe a few years later, Cable was, would have been ready for this show, but it didn't happen. Or maybe the passing of time creates a, a reason to re-enter this story. I'm thinking, like, uh, the before trilogy or something, you know, if you catch up with characters years later, where are they now? I think um, the the resurrected 90210 was actually like that. All the kids from the first show were the parents of the new show. Maybe not the best example. But then the thir- <laughs> the third idea would be in the original premise, and my my answer here might be lost for this exact reason. We got oh, a lot of you lost. Think lost
1: was gone too soon. No, we got
2: we got a lot of lost, but I would bring back lost because there were enough kind of sliding door moments, as I would say. You know, we go in this direction, then we go take a turn here, take a turn here, and we keep going down this rabbit hole in one direction from the basic premise that you could bring back the original show, set it up in the exact same way, and go in a totally different direction, completely different show. Yes. And I, I think Lost is like that. Why I wouldn't mind to see a sequel to Lost resurrecting that brand that you know that ABC will inevitably do this because it's so, I mean, it's such an important property at this point. I don't see how they, you know, they're going to bring it back at some point. But I think I'd be ready for that. There's so many ways to go down the rabbit hole again with Lost. What would you guys bring back? And how would you do it? We do <sighs> you want to start? That's a good question i I choose to reboot both of you here. no, um, yeah. Dave, how about you? Uh,
0: okay, outside of like the easy things, which would be like cartoons and comedy shows, and then probably I would give one of my testicles for some Star trek uh like on television again.
1: that's gonna and- happen, right?
0: Well, I mean, you would assume so, but they waited basically like past the prime of like the TV era where you could have done like a new next generation or something for really cheap. But like what I'm talking about is like the basic, what Patches is sort of talking about that gap that we have for uh, episodic sci-fi that could like take on big ideas at the Black Mirror level, but also have a cast that you tune in for because you like I'm a next-generation person, so
2: something like that would be nice for me. I don't know if Star Trek could ever scale down from the movies now that they've become true... $150 $150 million blockbusters. I
1: if mean, you, never... you see how good Game of Thrones looks.
2: I know, but can you... No, that's not really what I mean. I mean, now that you've done them as those kind of movies, can you scale it back and do it as a television show? Or do they... O- from here on out, they always have to be gigantic blockbusters because that's how the young generation has thought of Star Trek.
0: Maybe not. I, I mean, if you give it two more years, you could do something that looks right. like there has 2008 to be a 2008 Star Trek. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think you could find the middle ground... Uh, between design and technology and budget. I guess it's, yeah, that's still a middle ground if it's in between three points. Anyway, I want to bounce off what Katie was saying, though, because my other answer is Roar, which was a 1997 TV series that aired on Fox for, like, Whoa. less than 10 episodes. Uh, but I was a huge fan of Roar. It was uh, this Irish guy who was played by Heath Ledger was driving out the Romans in, like, 400 500 AD, Jeez, and
1: this is a deep it, cut,
0: yeah. No, and one of the the warlocks is like was revealed to be immortal because he had possession of the spear that had stabbed Jesus. Oh, Vera
2: Farmiga was on the show.
0: <laughs> oh, no, this was an awesome show. This show is shows what actually got me into fan fiction when it was canceled. Oh. I got in the AOL chat room. And into a Roar fan fiction group, and we continued the plot of Roar. Wow. Uh, But then then they actually did air the last few episodes some point later down the line. But my point is that Roar was doing basically like the Game of Thrones feeling with actual American, or not American, actual world history just tweaked with fantasy a little bit. And now, if you gave it some sort of budget and put it back on Fox, I think it might
2: might do okay. Well, I don't think Heath Ledger's going to come back for the reboot. I'm sorry, Dave.
0: No. Ooh. But then but all of a sudden this part has prestige that it didn't have before, so maybe you could get
2: someone good in there.
1: Wow. There this is a, this That's is a a solid that is a, idea.
2: An awesome answer. I don't know how Katie can possibly. No,
1: look that. my answer is as good, but actually in a really similar vein. I was thinking of this series Kings that was on NBC. Dave, this yes. is like something you might have watched. Oh yes. Um and it made it maybe eight episodes or so, and it kind of became clear that it was being cancelled. But it was basically The book is not the book of David, but it's about King David of the Bible uh, set in a sort of fantasy modern day New York. And it had Ian McShane as the king and it had all these up and comers and all this intrigue that was kind of biblically based and kind of not. And it was just super expensive and kind of strange and therefore (laughs) never really stood a chance on a network. But it was like Roar before Game of Thrones. And I think... The idea of fantasy on that level that is kind of thick and literary and expensive is so much more plausible now. And I honestly even think a network would give it a shot again to try and get some of that, you know, Game of Thrones money. Like fantasy has succeeded on networks more in like right. the post Once Upon a Time Grim era as well. Um, and this show was just really interesting and really uh, genuine in a way that is really hard for a lot of network dramas to do, like most of them are used to kind of the sassy procedurals and this one was just like super deep and emotional. So I'd like to see someone give Kings another shot. I
2: wonder if um, Amazon's The Man in the High Castle, that alternate oh,
1: history yeah. show,
2: like, could somehow replace that void.
1: That's, a, you know, I watched a little bit of that pilot and then didn't finish it. Um, Not for yes. lack of interest, just like, Turn it off and then I well, I mean, I didn't come back to it, so maybe there's lack of interest. But I was really intrigued by that, so yeah, that's a really good point. I I liked I like the idea of that, and I uh, I'm glad that it's being picked up because I do think I will check that show out.
2: Are there any shows that like you would want to see the narrative continued? You know, Dave and I are. Obsessed, and we've put this to rest. But with the Avatar universe, and we had the Legend of Korra podcast that we did on the side here, um, and that was a, that was a true sequel series. That's like seventy years later, something else in the same universe happens, and it, you never see that. You, that never happens. Um, you know, everyone wants to reboot. You know, we're going to make a new Charlie's Angels, or we want to reboot Charmed, which is actually something I've heard is happening. Ah, uh, for some reason, but why, why? Why not do more of the same world as opposed to more of the same? Well, Better
1: Call Saul show? is is kind of your example of that.
2: Yeah, which I think has been really successful. I've seen some people who are down on it, but I I certainly feel like it's living side by side with its its predecessor and and charting new territory. It's it's been great so far, and I guess that's exactly what I'm talking about. But maybe something that. I don't know, that some time has passed where you could pick up with similar characters as opposed to kind of going on a tangent.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're getting a Walking Dead spin off this summer, so we might, need to be, we might need to be careful what we wish for here.
0: Yeah, that one's been greenlit for two seasons already. Yeah, I saw that enraging you on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, well, not... in Okay, a little bit enraging me, but... I guess to answer your question, first of all, this new X-Files they've been pussyfooting around about should have happened, like, years ago, around the time that the original X-Files Apocalypse was supposed to happen. What the hell but, is X-Files Apocalypse? Excellent. No, sure. the original X-Files Apocalypse, the one that they prevented, but oh. maybe. Gotcha. Anyway, around like the whole like 2012 thing, we should have checked it with Mulder and Scully, not with a movie that had nothing to do with the overall conspiracy. So I'd like to see those two characters, you know, sort of pass it off to somebody else. Once again, I kind of want an episodic thing, but Patches, my greatest hope is that we won't know the Lost Sequel series until the end of the first season of whatever the Lost Sequel series is. Ah!
1: That is a great idea. <laughs> There's
2: no way that would ever happen. That
1: will never happen. The
2: promotion engine does not allow for such incredible surprises, I don't think. I mean, I
0: think. I think if you if you get the same combination of people together again... And they've all been raked over the coals for doing, like, mythology improperly one time. If they got one more shot at it, don't you think that they would want to, like, take it at those lost clones and be like, no, this is what it should have been?
2: <laughs> that I, I, I mean, they, they do want to do that. But it's just not going to happen. It's going to come out the gates being lost again. We <laughs> Re- lost. We lost. <laughs> <laughs> Go free uh, Alright, that wraps up this conversation, but I have to say that I really want new episodes of Andy Richter Controls the Universe. Yeah. So yesterday was St. Patrick's Day. I don't know if you went out and celebrated, but if you did, you're probably not listening to this the day it was released because you're still in a hangover. But if you are and you're alive, great. Uh, We're going to (laughs) celebrate St. Patrick's Day in our mini-segment, kind of. I, I, I I laughed. I LOL'd at a David Ehrlich tweet. Uh, on St. Patrick's Day when he said, you can drink all you want, but everybody knows that St. Patrick's Day won't be a legit holiday until Gary Marshall makes a movie about it. I laughed. I laughed at this tweet. It was very clever. Congratulations, David. Um, But it also inspires this mini-segment because I I turn it on all of us to basically take the premise that Gary Marshall is going to make a St. Patrick's Day movie with tons of uh, threads and nonsense intertwined into one stupid romantic comedy, ensemble and romantic comedy. So to you two and to me, what is, the, what is your theoretical St. Patrick's Day plot thread? Uh, what, what happens in your part of this movie? Please pitch it to me so that I can have a hearty LOL.
1: All right, I got mine. I don't yes. think it's quite as complicated as Gary Marshall would want, but... Oh, all right. no. It starts with Liam Neeson, obviously. Okay. Irish, it's St. Patrick's Day. Uh, he I'm believes Liam that his... He believes that his daughter has been kidnapped. His daughter's played by Scarlett Johansson. He goes on his typical rampage, and, you know, it's a, there's an attractive woman who's joining him. I'm thinking she's probably played by Maria Bello. You're welcome to recast. Um, Maria Bello?
2: Where did that come from? Why? I don't what, know. Why I, now? I, I, her, is I, I, this a comeback role? Yes, I
1: think it's, it's her comeback role. I think okay. Gary Marshall has that power. Uh, so he eventually gets to his daughter. Uh, she's Scarlett Johansson. Turns out she hasn't been kidnapped. She's just been canoodling with Bradley Cooper this whole time. This is a reunion between Scarlett Johansson and Bradley Cooper, uh, co-stars If He's Just Not That Into You. Which isn't a Gary Marshall point, no, but made but as it well. Feels have been.
2: like one, yes, it yes, certainly does and
1: they're really one. good in it together. So there's a period of time in which uh, the two of them are kind of having their romance. It's very cute, and then you realize he is in fact an assassin. Scarlett Johansson gets to go all Lucy on him, uh, kill him, and everyone else who's surrounding Whoa. him. Uh, and then eventually, while she's on the run, she finds Amy Adams. It's a her reunion. It's, a, you know, the two characters didn't get to be together in her. And then they have a Thelma and Louise-style road Holy
2: adventure. Holy shit. I'm going to have to step in here because my plot thread involves <laughs> Amy Adams. So yes, okay, Amy- pick it up from here. We're yes, making Amy the Adams, exquisite Amy- Corpse Scary Marshall movie. <laughs> Amy Adams and Matthew Good appear as their characters from Leap from
1: Year. From Leap Year? Yes! yes.
2: But, but uh, here's the key. It's a no, different Leap- timeline. So the events of the first film did not happen. Uh, in this timeline, <laughs> Amy Adams' character is meeting Adam Scott at a Pogues concert at Madison Square Garden, but she accidentally takes, like, the one train in the wrong direction, and she goes to the Irish Hunger Museum and meets Matthew Good. Um, and despite the Why fact...
1: Why is he at the Irish Hunger Museum? Because he's a
2: sophisticated Cause... man! She doesn't know she wants a sophisticated man. She wants a music lover. She wants someone from, like, high, f- high fidelity, but she really gets a sophisticated, learned man who's going to the Irish Hunger Museum. Um, and despite the fact that they're going, she's trying to get to a Pogues, concert uh, her and matthew good dance to a new song by the cranberries wow yeah. it's very romantic
1: does bono not approvingly somewhere in the background
2: yeah he makes a cameo he's also <laughs> at the irish hunger museum
1: <laughs> is he the is he the runner is he, he, like the man he takes the, the tickets the at the irish hunger museum, hunger museum. Okay. it's
2: not really he's not playing bono he's but he no is it, a it,
1: it's a it's a tongue-in-cheek he's a wearing a cameo. those shades bono being a man of the people yes all right dave
2: be good that. luck, Dave. Good luck.
0: Interesting. No, I have different threads, but I don't really know how and if they overlap. That's
2: sort of like an, an act. Two this was problem. just a, a beautiful coincidence. Problem. So don't don't feel beholden to the the past.
0: Well, mine also involves Liam Neeson because it just feels like that that was a good pull it's that I should have seen coming. Yeah, but I bet mine's different. We opened, and Liam Neeson is getting divorced from Beyonce. And. uh... We We've all follow... been leading to this. <laughs> was also Irish. No.
1: Yes, surprisingly maybe. enough.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, they've they've just come across some sort of amicable divorce, uh, but maybe there's some sort of gold digger aspect from the Liam Neeson character. But he's going to redeem himself. Leprechaun gold it. digging,
2: to be exact.
0: Ooh. Well, well, hold on. You're, that's the oh, second shit, plot. Sorry. You got to hold on. <laughs> he's going to redeem himself by trying to find a leprechaun. And our leprechaun plot is. Bradley Cooper Leprechaun yes! is strangely in love with Jennifer Lawrence, Los Angeles uh, kept woman Ooh. and has to <laughs> take on uh, Tom Hardy, um, rich asshole to, to win her heart. Whoa. And obviously oh Liam Neeson's going to figure out Bradley Cooper's the Leprechaun and sort of intercede somehow. And then I want, I want Liam Neeson and Beyonce to have sassy uh, mixed race kids.
1: Are they? Do Liam Neeson and Beyonce get back together in the end?
0: I don't know if that's necessary, if we find other people they should be together with.
2: And, and do you think Bradley Cooper is, uh, like, they use CG to make him a tiny leprechaun like they do to Gerard Butler in movie 43?
1: Or Gary Oldman in tiptoes. Oh,
2: God. I imagine there could be
0: parts like that, but it's all like the general idea that, you know, if men already have a whole bunch of money, they would use a leprechaun to get better women. Mm.
1: Oh! That I didn't even tradition. think about. I didn't even think about Leprechauns having that power.
0: I don't know. I feel well, like... I think if Gary Marshall's obsessed with anything, it would be some sort of younger woman, older man pairing. It just seems like he's getting into that age group. Very Hollywood of him.
2: <laughs> this is all. This is all correct. Now they're gonna make this movie. So this week, HBO's The Jinx, which is how I say it every single time I talk about it. HBO's The Jinx.
1: Is that the name of the Gary Marshall Valentine's or St. Patrick's Day movie? Oh
2: my god, (laughs) The Jinx. The Jinx. Uh, No, wait. That makes absolutely no sense. Um, The Jinx of the Irish. (laughs) This week, HBO's The Jinx wrapped up. It's Andrew Jarecki of Capturing the Freedmen fame. I was going to say All Good Things fame, but absolutely not because... Like no five people from... saw that movie. Uh, so of uh, Capturing the Freeman's Fame, documentarian, the founder of Movie Phone. Did you know that? I uh, know that. <laughs> he, he made this documentary, this multi-part documentary for HBO about uh goddamn Robert Durst. This uh, heir to to a New York real estate family, like huge too. So the people that was who one of they the...
1: own uh, both my old office building and my new office Yes,
2: building. which is is they go into that in the jinx that they own the the Conde building in Times Square and now they are the people renting out space in the Freedom Tower. So yep. they're loaded. They have a, a shit ton of money. And Robert Durst it's it's a little um unclear how he stays in the family. He's not really part of the family business, especially after he was accused of one murder and then two murders and then <laughs> three murders. Um not really part of the family business anymore. So Andrew Jarecki wanted to do this miniseries after making the film All Good Things, which was kind of... Based on, I mean, very based on the uh, the the life of Robert Durst. I mean, if you go back and watch All Good Things, which if you've seen The Jinx, the poster for that movie is in the background of every single fucking scene. So you have been subliminally suggested to go watch it on Netflix. If you do, you're making a horrible mistake. It is a terrible, terrible film. Uh, really boring. And Ryan Gosling, you know what? Not a good actor. He's not a good actor. Ooh. Ooh. And uh, the movie is bad. <laughs> and it's all on him. But anyway, getting way off track here. The Jinx wrapped up this week with a big shocker ending. Um, you know, it was kind of an Andrew Drecky, you got him moment for Robert Durst. Robert Durst basically off-camera into his microphone that was still recording while he was in the bathroom, confessed to all these murders that he's told us over eight episodes or whatever that he he did not commit, and he was very insistent. And Jarecki goes through all the evidence, goes through all the cases, goes interviews tons of family members, interviews the, the uh, family of Robert Durst's first wife, who is kind of—she went missing um, back in, I believe, the 70s, the late 70s, and that's kind of what kicked off this whole weird saga very peculiar, very peculiar series, and it kind of touches on multiple things that we've talked about on this show before, uh, including Serial, the podcast, and um, a few weeks ago we had a conversation about Brian Williams' big lie and what that meant, like if, if Brian Williams was allowed to lie uh, for for a good truth, for for the ecstatic truth, as Werner Herzog might say, uh, does does knowing something about the world, the truth of the world, mean that you can lie about the details in order to tell people about that truth? And that's what Jarecki is kind of running into right now. There have been many many articles picking apart this final episode of the Jinx that has played fast and loose, probably with time. And when, when the events that he's chronicled in in the series have actually happened in order to dramatize and put emphasis on this last final moment, this extraordinary get can, can you
1: clarify me for me what – so it's not anything about the murders that's been fiddled with. It's the idea of what, what Jarecki knew and when he knew it.
2: Well, I guess that's questions that it raises. If, if you have manipulated parts of your documentary, have you undermined the truth of other aspects? And what um, makes us what,
1: think that he's done that?
2: Well, well uh, they're,
0: yeah, in the final episode, they're, it, to build tension to this second interview, they portray it as having taken place after a 2013 event where Robert Durst was arrested when really the second interview took place more in 2012, like I think June of 2012 it is. Okay. So he to build suspense to the capping moment there's all this talk like he's avoiding doing a second interview and then he makes it appear as if this arrest in 2013 that the filmmakers used that as some sort of leverage by like cooperating with his defense
1: and then there's also the question of when they found the audio that he recorded while he was in the bathroom and some people don't believe that they uh found it as late as they did
2: Correct. Right. And, okay. So that but. makes people suspicious about like, when did you give this to the police? And like, is that a legal problem for Jarecki? Is he withholding evidence to make a better television show? Because as many people know, a few hours before the finale of the Jinx, Robert Durst was arrested for murder by the LAPD when he was found in New, uh, New Orleans. And there was a big to do that whole day was pretty much consumed by Robert Durst and Jinx talk. Um, and it was supposedly all coincidental. But you know who knows when Jarecki handed over. He big piece of evidence in this in this investigation has been finding a letter sent to the second alleged victim of Robert Durst, um, letter that matches the handwriting to something that the supposed killer sent to the LAPD. This is very confusing. So if you if you are out of the jinx, as as Katie is a little bit out of the jinx, um, very this might be confounding. I've not watched it, (laughs) but I, I think what we're we're honing in on here is. Whether if you're making a documentary, if documentary filmmaking and journalism, A, is the same thing, because many people have taken Jarecki to task for manipulating his footage in any way to dramatize it, to make this incredible finale, this jaw-dropping moment at the end. Because, I mean, once you see this finale episode, I I don't think I'm going to get into too many spoilers for people who haven't seen it. Uh, I'm only going to talk about the way my jaw was on the floor here. Is that Direcki gets the interview that he wants, um, and it kind of fizzles out. You know, Durst plays from beginning to end in this series. Durst withholds information or or resists really digging deep into the questions that Direcki asks him. He's not uh, he's 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 blinking a lot, but he's not telling a lot of truth uh, or, or giving a lot of information. But in this final moment, he he's offered a sandwich, doesn't take it, goes to the bathroom, and confesses to these murders. And whether that happened all at once is, is in question. But does it matter? Does it matter if, you know, Jarecki well, had, to it, restage, had to restage parts of his own investigation to have footage that made this episode narratively coherent? Um, people seem to think yeah. so. There are many diatribes against Jarecki's filmmaking, uh, but I don't know if I have a real problem with it.
0: No, because it's different from the law, which will be served in this case. And in some, or, or basically the ongoing cases where we have this discussion, be it Serial or Brian Williams, it's like there's a difference, I think. And I hope I've been making this uh, argument consistently across those other two episodes. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong in the reviews. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you I, if you're wrong. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely Bradley Cooper. The worth making a narrative. Yeah, Bradley Cooper, the leprechaun will tell me <laughs> if I'm wrong. He's the only one who has the right. Um, if you're making a narrative, then those sort of things, I think, can be done to an audience. Like, I think we learned with the conclusion of Serial that we should have been taking that more as a narrative all along. Mm -hmm. And definitely, as I've been consuming true crime since then, I've been trying to look at it more as like an art form and a story uh, than like some sort of uh, crime that needs solving.
2: here's where I'd bring Katie really into this conversation is we never got a chance to kind of talk about Serial as, as a whole Experience. Uh, we talked about it right at the beginning when we didn't really know what it was, and I was troubled a little bit by it. Um, which I think, I don't know. I, I I don't know if I got over those feelings, those ethical questions that were lingering throughout Serial for me. For me, Serial was overtaken by this kind of narrative uh, dullness. This this fizzling out of her own story with her inability because of her her choice. Sarah Koenig's choice to edit on the fly, to, to tell stories in the moment and show the work, uh, they weren't interesting. They weren't entertaining. Uh, whether, whether they were true and whether they were reflective of her experience making the show, they weren't fun. And The Jinx is pretty enter- damn entertaining from beginning to end. And I think it's because... You know, Jarecki did this whole show and then delivered it to HBO. He knew, any shot, perhaps based on you know the the reporting of the New York Times that suggests that Robert Durst was actually arrested earlier in the timeline that the show depicts. So oh, maybe he I created mean, fake we... footage of him working at the chalkboard to be like when, or you know, to when are we going to do this interview? What are we going to ask? This is all filler footage that they they basically probably reenacted to have in this episode, but you know Uh, what? It's effective.
0: Right, right. It's effective, not only that, but like what you said before, it was a completed work. Like, if you look at the stuff that we see in episode six, it's echoed, back throughout the series we see recreations of key moments but we really only see one recreation of one murder over and over again and that's the murder that the series ends up concerning we see we even see like a hot mic moment in an earlier episode just to establish that this isn't like out of left field when we see at the conclusion of the series it was definitely crafted to be exactly what it was Absolutely Whether or right. not during another law.
2: interview earlier in the series, he, he's just rambling on. Durst is just talking into the mic, and his yeah, lawyer maybe, walks over, is like, your yeah. "Mic's on."
0: <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. And so, I thought, and like, all that was—I thought that was outrageous like for it to happen in this series and then they just built on it which meant that they know that this is like a building climax well it's, uh, so it's the like, problem
1: that people have the sense that like they knew that they knew this confession was coming they built the whole series around it but then they didn't tell the LAPD about it until last weekend I mean I, the LAPD has disputed that so I know that's not necessarily the case So it is the idea that they were like sitting on this murder confession just for the sake of a good conclusion but, of their series but,
0: I think it's that uh, up until the last episode, the series was not about the process of getting the interviews. Mm -hmm. It was about the cases. Mm -hmm. And the last episode, because it was, you know, had this big bombshell at the end of it, spent the entire episode building to that bombshell because we had already been so thoroughly over the cases building to this moment that all of a sudden what they were left with was a moment that, you know, there should be a lot of hesitation on that behalf of the detectives. And so that's what we got. But, like, realistically, if they've been working on this thing for, like, five years, that episode, you know, it could have been just a five-episode series if they wanted to condense it that
2: way. They wanted to build to this, you know, gem they found. And there was not much fat in the Jinx. Like, I learned a lot in each episode. These are perfectly crafted by seasoned documentarians. I mean, this is tight shit. And, I I mean, again, I was blown away. By the ending. Now, I do have questions, and I'm sure that there are eight thousand lawyer quoted think pieces floating around the internet right now that I could probably read to answer this question. But I'm like, Does, will any of this hold up in court? I really think that Durst walks in the end. I've read, I've read those think pieces. Oh, have you? Would you like me to? I inform? would like to know if, like, if you because in New York you can't really just record someone. I don't, I don't know how you get away recording. He wasn't someone wasn't being without rec- their no, he,
1: without was, no. he was. He was. He was. He knew that he was being recorded. He just got.
2: I just. He gets. What will he gets around uh, the Bill
0: of Rights? The the it could be used. It could get around the Bill of Rights and be used as evidence because he agreed to the recording and it's not like a government process. So he's not being coerced into it. The whole thing's gonna hinge. On whether or not, if after giving an interview with your microphone on, if you go into the bathroom, there's still a reasonable expectation of privacy because it's a bathroom. I just
2: wonder also if you can find a, a jury that will not be <laughs> informed by this documentary in some way by the no, time
0: that it's happening. No, come
2: it's be on, it's an
1: HBO documentary. It's like a like not everyone gets HBO. Once, also once in
2: 71. See, so once like you see what, Durst on trial in Galveston for this. Uh, this third murder, I suppose that he allegedly committed. I, I should always say allegedly because I don't want because uh, you're a lawyer. I don't want lawyers to come after me. Um, allegedly committed this. He was he was found not guilty. And I mean the outmaneuvering of of. I mean he convinced all these jury people that he was not guilty. They're they interviewed in the jinx saying like, no, he he did not commit this. Like it just is not true. You know, putting everything else aside, he didn't do it. Clearly he did, <laughs> which means he'll probably walk from this whole incident. I don't know if that matters. Like, he's been so – like, this is a damning, damning Wait, you think he'll
1: walk f- in a trial for a completely different murder? I
2: really prob- I really do. I don't know. I just feel like something has gone – this documentary will prove – like, something will be inadmissible. Uh, the evidence is, that they found – Is here, this just you being something, pessimistic
1: something, about this? I am system. being
2: pessimistic because look at this documentary and you will see – True pessimism in the court system.
0: Uh, <laughs> I've been, I, I've described it as like serial was the story of a, like a innocent minority like well, getting wrongfully imprisoned. I don't know if he's innocent. Jinx serial. Okay, I'm, I'm talking about the narrative thrust. Sure. Whereas Jinx is the story that you're driven by the audacity of the things this white rich man can get away with. And so, like, he doesn't want to be I,
2: rich, Dave. He
0: was born right, into it yeah' okay. born into uh, carry he there, there, yeah, a lot carriage. of people get no. a lot of people get born into things they can't help and don't like, end up killing people like the patches like family no like the patch like the patches family <laughs> the long suffering patches family <laughs> but uh it, it, the, there's something that's like this documentary his, i i don't know this might be the only form of justice that society is going to see ever served upon yeah, Robert Durst I, because I think that. I, either he's going to get away with it just because the richest people are capable of buying uh, the
2: best possible defense.
0: Does
1: he have like access Patches. to all that money still?
2: He has access to a lot of it. Um, How? There's a lot he of- has access to money but cannot step on the stoop of his brother's brownstone or whatnot that's how he got arrested in 2013 for for breaking because his brother there's thinks a lot he's of murder him
0: <laughs> i mean there's a uh, lot of questions he's probably questions. accurate yes yeah. Jarecki's obviously or said he's obviously Jarecki said he's still working so there might be a jinx too yeah, if this there trial be,
2: there will definitely be some jinx follow-up maybe a telemovie of some sort hopefully not in all good things too because fuck that <laughs> movie um here, here's my real question going Way back, and maybe this is off topic. I can hear David kind of whispering in my ear that this is reductive. But do you do you feel that serial um, is is too true? Was too committed to being truthful? Uh, then it you know was that its problem? Did that did that make it less entertaining? Like the Jinx works so well, and we're all talking about it with such positivity. I,
1: I think there's something we expect from radio documentary that we don't expect from film documentary. I think the idea of the ecstatic truth can exist on film in a way that it can't for radio. And I don't know if that's because of like, what it's like to hear something versus to see something or just because of genre expectations. But I don't, I don't think that you can fiddle with the timeline in that way on radio and not be seen, be seen to have committed a serious breach.
2: Well, I, I feel like we've, we, mm-hmm. I feel like we've gone way... I mean, we've passed a certain point when Mike Daisy lied about um, Apple production. But that in China. was
1: lying. That no, wasn't, I know. Like...
2: And that like set up a far bar. Like there, there is ecstatic truth on the radio, or there should be. I mean, that's what Radio Lab.
1: I mean, that's what... so well,
2: that's what. Also... No,
1: but Radio Lab is telling the truth. It's just illustrating it and you know making it dramatic. I mean, I, David Sedaris is an example of something like that. But that's an ecstatic truth that doesn't really harm anybody and isn't really ga- isn't really fact checkable so i guess i guess different. so I've
2: been listening to this podcast invisibilia have you mm-hmm. heard of this? Mm-hmm. and they did an episode about a man or a, a, i guess a transgendered person who was like flipping back and forth between male and female
1: uh-huh
2: um this was some sort of mental thing and um the way that it was constructed was like, yes, this is real. Like, this is happening. And they interviewed this person, and they just kind of let the quotes fly. And like, this is, man, this is really happening. And then towards the end, they kind of get to this point where they start interviewing people, um, you know, like scientists and and gender studies people who are like, no, this person is just transgender. And they're like, they've convinced themselves of this kind of strange phenomenon, but eventually and eventually this guy gets to the point where it's like oh no i i am actually a woman um and it, it this was just my in between moment or something but they like really stretched this whole story out and i thought about you know the ecstasy of truth in some way the theatrics of having this question when when really the answers were no <laughs> we don't hmm. think there's a weird phenomenon there um, but it's more entertaining if we do think about it for 20 minutes and then get to the end and don't. Um, that that And and it, and it is entertaining, and it was thought-provoking. Uh, this is not to undermine invisibility, but this is certainly something they knew was not really true, according to all the experts that they interviewed. And eventually the person, this this woman that they ended up interviewing, I mean, this was just not true. But it's fun. It's interesting to listen to. So I I well, don't know if I agree like, that the like, you- ecstasy of truth. <laughs> interferes here or th- it doesn't play on the radio i mean this is exactly well,
0: i mean you you hit the nail around the head about why serial benefited from being this sort of stream of consciousness reacting to the internet sort of thing is because it puts you in a situation to ask the questions you're asking yourself as a reporter to an audience without the burden of
2: having to really i would think it having opposite, to be the truth because invisibilia is You know, completely done when it goes out. It rolls out with a full story that is, um, you know, made cinematic, if I can use that phrase, uh, for a radio program.
0: But not, Serial was not that way. So you could look at that and say, like, this was a conscious decision by people to ask me this question because it was a story artfully told. Serial was like, we're probing this. We're going to probe it using these tools. Here's what we find. And that, I think, you benefit in getting at, like, the deeper idea of the story and the narrative that you're building. It's just that deeper idea wasn't a factual truth. Gotcha, gotcha.
2: Well, I guess um, this is the long-winded way of saying that we all agree that the Jinx was perfectly in the right to play with time and play with editing and play with filmmaking techniques to uh, land the perfect punch at the end of its series. And while All Good Things is a horrible, horrible film, the Jinx is a perfect corrective <laughs> to that. And I guess we didn't really have to have this conversation. It was all theatrics that we built to in wow. advance. And we was knew all, all along that the we were
1: going to
2: agree. <laughs> truth lives on in maybe, the maybe. World maybe katie will maybe katie will watch
1: yeah once i see the, the jinx. jinx but what if i've already watched the jinx and i'm just saying i haven't watched it so that i can give it a great fight next week
0: uh, for sweeps
1: week that's how this works right Podcast yeah sweeps. sweeps
0: yeah we got we scored uh coke coke advertising this year
1: yeah i'm excited actual cocaine you mean right
0: yes yes <laughs> yeah, Obviously. definitely Obviously.
1: perfect <laughs> That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to discuss Insurgent and The Gunman. I'm sorry, The Divergent series, Insurgent. Let's,
2: yeah, full cool uh, titles only.
1: Let's be correct with our marketing terms. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are.
2: I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer for Esquire.com and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a Facebook page and a website, you know. Uh, you can leave comments on either. You can share episodes on either. The Magical process of social media is with us it's alive. fighting in the and facebook slash
0: yes no it is facebook <laughs> slash fighting in the war room Two of you liked O-P-K-I-N-O this week, so wrong direction, guys. That's still coming to me, though. Uh, So, you know, thank you for listening to stuff. Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You could read me at geek.com, forbes.com, latino-review.com, and podcasting here at fightinginthewarroom.com. In whatever feed you hear me in, I'm probably doing another podcast in that feed with these wonderful people.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me pretty much just at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And Twitter is also a great place to find all of us at F-I-T-W-R where you can tell us your answer to this week's lightning round question, which was...
0: In honor of Insurgent, what's the best movie moment involving something or someone crashing through glass?
1: The broad spectrum of answers, guys. Expect some good ones. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.